This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Tim Burtzis. Tim Burtzis, pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. Okay, and why are we talking about Tim today? Matt, sometimes you aim for the moon and you land on a star, or you aim for the stars and you land on the moon, or you aim for the stars and you shoot yourself into the sun. What I did this week is I was aiming for Rick Cerrone and I landed on Tim Burtzis. Ah. It's a classic issue that everybody runs into where you're really... You want to learn more about Rick Cerrone, who's a catcher for the Yankees and a blue jeans model, sometimes country singer. And you look up his Sabre bio and you see that it was assigned to Steve Friedman, but it hasn't been written yet. But Steve had written a bio about Tim Burtzis. So thank you to Steve Friedman for this Tim Burtzis Sabre bio. We look forward to that Rick Cerrone bio one of these days. Tim Burtzis was a big pitcher who played parts of five major league seasons. He was involved in some big trades and then played a couple seasons for international teams before heading back to his hometown. Let's go to the big guy on the front of 501. And we have Tim Burtzis in a staged shot where he is raising his arms over his head as if he's about to wind up, but he's definitely not winding up to actually pitch a ball. He has a tiny long sleeve shirt on. His arms are way too long for this long sleeve shirt. (laughs) Tiny tees are are a staple of the 1988 Tops podcast. We believe in tiny tees. And Tim definitely did not get this long sleeve yellow shirt from the Big and Tall store. As someone who's pretty tall myself, this is a problem I have had many times in my life is long sleeve t-shirts, long sleeve athletic shirts, not being nearly long enough for your arms. And it just looks somewhat embarrassing. Like you stole your little brother's shirt or your mom's shirt as the case may be. He needs a bespoke (laughs) t-shirt. He's got to go to get a tailored bright yellow t-shirt to wear underneath his A's jersey. I think that the uniform here looks good. I do like the Green A's hat with the yellow brim. Got the spring training shirt. One thing that is notable about this card, we've talked about a few Oakland Athletics recently, including Glenn Hubbard's traded card as well as Don Baylor's traded card. If you look at the nameplate of those cards, they are purple. Tim's is blue, Mm. and this is the only blue nameplate on an Oakland Athletics card. I'm not sure if I prefer this, to the purple. Neither of them are Oakland Athletics colors. It doesn't look too bad. It just is really out of place when all of the other Oakland A's cards are have a purple nameplate to go with the green border and green writing. I'm checking in the, the Beckett guide, and it does not list this card as an extremely valuable error. Just the normal value of a Tim Burtzis card. It is evident from this card that Tim is a big guy as he takes up three quarters of the front of this card. Not a lot of space for the sky. He was six seven, just a very large man. And they shot this from an angle that really shows Tim's size. Just a big dude. 
Let's go to the back of 501. Tim Burtis, pitcher, six feet seven, 240, left-handed thrower and batter. Drafted by the Yankees in the second round of 1982. Born September 5th, 1960 in Pontiac, Michigan, with a home in Clarkston, Michigan. That last name, Burtzis, I looked on a few sites trying to find the origins of the last name. I found that Tim's father, Gus, was a member of the Greek Orthodox Church of Flint and found some sites that showed the name Burtzis coming from Hungary, others coming from Greece. Tim's family was of Greek descent. He was born in Pontiac, Michigan, home of the Silver Dome, which held the opening game of the 1994 World Cup. That was the first World Cup game played indoors. In 2009, that stadium, which had been abandoned, was sold for $550,000. And then in 2013, the roof collapsed on the stadium. It was finally demolished between 2017 2018. Matt, I know that you have some experience in Pontiac, Michigan. Yeah, my in-laws used to live in the Detroit area, and one epic family Thanksgiving where my family and my wife's family hung out at my in-laws' house in Shelby Township, Michigan. We were looking for karaoke to do the night after Thanksgiving, the Friday night of Thanksgiving weekend. The only place that had karaoke was in Pontiac. I don't know that the bar is still there. But we had a fantastic time. Pontiac, Michigan plays a very important you know, role in, in my family history. So between Shelby and Pontiac, most of Michigan is named after cars? Yes. Or vice versa? Yes, certainly. Yes. Tim didn't live in Pontiac. He grew up in nearby Clarkston. That's not a car. Clarkston is about 35 miles from Detroit, the smallest city by land area in Michigan. It's only 0.44 square miles but had 750 people in 1960. Around 1,000 people live there as of 2020. There's some big names connected with Clarkston. Star of One Day at a Time and one-time spouse of Eddie Van Halen, Valerie Bertinelli, spent part of her childhood there. Kid Rock owns a home there. And Henry Ford once owned a summer home and a mill, which is on what is now known as Mill Pond in Clarkston. And Tigers play-by-play man Dan Dickerson lives there. Tim's father, Gus, was an English teacher and PE teacher. He also coached baseball at Clarkston High, and he would later become a junior high principal in the area. Tim's mom, Carolyn, was a nurse, and Gus coached Tim growing up until he reached high school. Tim credited his dad with a lot of his success, saying, I became a professional ball player because of him. He put as much work into it as I did. Tim even told a story of struggling in the minors, and his dad flew out to Las Vegas to help him get his game back on track. And at Clarkston High School, Burtzis grew to 6'7", 240 as he's listed on the card. He played baseball and basketball. Other Clarkston alums include Steve Howe, not the guy from Yes, but the pitcher, 1980 National League Rookie of the Year. That's Steve Howe, who passed away in 2006. And also the creator of Dan Flash's Complicated Pattern Shirts, Sloppy Steaks, and the Baby of the Year pageant, Tim Robinson of I Think You Should Leave Fame. Tim Burtzis was a good pitcher, but not on a big league radar. He went to Michigan State, where he majored in recreation and youth leadership with an emphasis on children with special needs. That's a, a different kind of major for a college baseball player, not one that we've come across in this podcast but an admirable major to have. The Spartans at this time didn't have a great team. 
They were under 500 all three years that Tim played there. And while the team was mediocre, Tim had a really good year as a senior, finishing 6-4 and four with 68 strikeouts in 64 innings and eight complete games. And that earned him second team all Big Ten. Scouts started to notice Tim. They noticed his size, first of all, and that he had a decent fastball for the time. One report clocked it as high as the high 80s to 90 miles an hour. And the same scout said he needed to learn a curveball and a changeup. Yeah, it seems like those would be good things to learn if you're going to be a professional pitcher. But hey, you can't teach height when it comes to being a pitcher. And it does help a lot to have long arms and be able to release the ball that much closer to home plate. So the Yankees picked him in the second round of the 1982 draft. Also in that round a little bit before Tim were David Wells and Floyd Yeomans. Later in that round were three high school kids who all decided to go to college. Barry Bonds, Bo Jackson, and Barry Larkin. Tim didn't have any more college eligibility, so he signed with the Yankees and went to rookie ball at Oneonta. In the minor leagues, the first year at rookie ball, he made six appearances. Five of them were starts. He walked 17 batters in 16 innings and also gave up 19 hits. So just a lot of base runners. That's a whip over two. He was a work in progress, but his ERA wasn't terrible. So he was at least able to get those guys out after giving up those base runners. He was really good the next year at Fort Lauderdale at A-ball. He cut his walks in half and reduced his hits as well. His whip was down from 2.2 to 1.2. He went 12-8 and with a 2.36 ERA, struck out 160 batters in 167 innings, and he probably would have been promoted to double-A, but unfortunately, that was delayed by a leg injury that kept him out for most of the next season. So he remains at Fort Lauderdale, and when he came back, he was pretty good in 10 starts, 5-1 and one with a 3.59 ERA for a team that won the Florida State League title. And that winter, Burtzis was part of a huge trade. And that takes us to this way to the clubhouse that Tim was traded by the Yankees to the A's with Stan Javier, Jose Rijo, Eric Plunk, and Jay Howell in exchange for Ricky Henderson and Stephen Burt Bradley, December 8th, 1984. This was described in the New York Times as, quote, wheeling and dealing in a style unparalleled at baseball's winter meetings. And in that article, there isn't much about Tim Burtzis. He was one of the lesser names on that list. But the other guys that the A's got, Jay Howell would make a couple all-star games for the A's as a closer, then was part of the trade that brought Bob Welch to Oakland. Stan Javier was a decent player for a few years in Oakland and then was traded in 1990 to the Dodgers for Willie Randolph. Eric Plunk was in the minors at this point. He would go on to a 14-year career for multiple teams and ended up getting traded back to New York in 1989, once again in exchange for Ricky Henderson. Uh, Jose Rijo at this point was really young and hadn't established himself. He would end up getting traded with Burtzis to the Reds in 1987, a trade that would haunt the Oakland A's in the 1990 World Series, where Rijo went 2-0 with a point. 5-9 ERA, winning the World Series MVP. Meanwhile, that other guy, Ricky Henderson, would be pretty good for the Yankees, making four straight All-Star games. In 1985, Ricky Henderson had one of his best seasons, hitting 314, 24 homers, stealing 80 bases, scoring 146 runs, and he set up Don Mattingly for a monster year by being on base a lot. 
Ricky probably should have been the MVP. Instead, he finished third because Mattingly drove in 145 runs and writers valued that more than Ricky's contribution. This trade ended up on worst trades in A's history lists. But to be fair to the A's at this point, which today we don't have to be fair to the A's or their ownership, but back <laughs> then, let's in retrospect, let's be fair. The A's weren't going to be able to re-sign Ricky Henderson, who was going to be a free agent after 1985. They ended up getting a decent haul of five players who all played for the A's, which is pretty impressive to get guys from single A who end up playing for your big league team. And then they also flipped some of those guys into parts of their dynasty, three straight AL champ teams, and won a World Series out of it, got a Cy Young winner in Bob Welch, and then they ended up getting Ricky Henderson back anyways. So I think the A's ended up pretty good. In that New York Times article that I referenced earlier, there is also a precursor to one of the Yankees' worst trades, one that would infuriate Frank Costanza. At the time, the team was negotiating a trade with the Pirates to bring in a, quote, minor league outfielder, along with Dale Barra. But they ran into some issues with Steve Kemp's contract. So it would take them another couple weeks to secure the services of Barra and that minor leaguer, Jay Buhner. Insert Frank mm. Costanza rant, because that just was a precursor to the Ken Phelps trade. Also mentioned in that article, the Yankees had traded away Rick Cerrone, so we will get more into that in a few weeks when we get to Rick Cerrone. When asked about the trade, Tim Burtzis said, I have mixed emotions about it. I was a little disappointed at first because I wanted to play with the Yankees, but then I felt that Oakland wouldn't have made a deal for me if they didn't have plans for me, and they did. Burtzis went to Oakland's AAA affiliate for 1985, and he would get his debut in 1985. He made four starts at Tacoma, going 2-2 two and two with a 3.04 ERA, and got called up. Three scoreless relief appearances, and then got a start on May 23rd. In that start, he gave up two runs and six innings to earn a win against the Orioles. His next start was one that fulfilled a childhood dream in Detroit. He said, it was a neat experience today. I always wanted to play in Tiger Stadium. I just always thought it'd be in the other uniform. He ended up taking a loss and also angered his fellow Michiganders with a, a mistake pitch. In the third inning, he faced a fellow Michigan State Spartan, Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson was also born in Pontiac, and his mother worked in the same school district with Tim's dad. So a lot of connections here. Gibson's up with the bases loaded, and Burtzis threw inside, and he didn't have the best control of that pitch, and it hit Gibson in the face. And this resulted in 17 stitches. The fans turned on Burtzis. They started booing the hometown boy who had come home. And he said, the last thing I wanted to do was walk in. I can understand everyone being upset. He's their hero. Burtzis only gave up three runs, but ended up taking the loss three to two. And despite the loss and hitting a guy in the face, after the game, the A's manager, Jackie Moore, said Burtzis would be a regular in the rotation. So he ends up winning a spot for the rest of the season. By late August, he was 10-4 and four with a 3.56 ERA, and there was a buzz around him that he might be a contender for Rookie of the Year in the American League. But in his last six starts, he went 0-2 with a 6.12 ERA, which gave him a decent year overall, 10-6 with a 4.01 ERA, an ERA plus of 95, and 141 innings in his rookie season. That's quite a bit of work. 
but he did not win Rookie of the Year. After the season, he bought a house back in his hometown of Clarkston. That showed up in the local newspaper. Despite that success in the rotation in 1985, Tim was expected to start 1986 in the bullpen. He only played two games in Oakland, giving up five earned runs in two innings. And so that 22.5 ERA looks pretty rough on the back of the card. He was sent back to Tacoma, where he'd spend the rest of the season. He had an injury, ended with an ERA over five in 19 games at AAA. The last lines on the card for 1987 aren't even in Oakland. It's double A is the final one. He starts the season in Tacoma, but ends up in Huntsville. He was pretty good, I guess, a combined 12 and 12 with a 3.43 ERA and 181 innings. But it's a kind of a surprising look for this baseball card. The fact that he didn't play at all in the majors in 1987, but he still got a card. And going into 1988, he's got this card. He's 27 years old. Like, what's the deal? It's really strange. He must be in the plans for Oakland going into the 1988 season. We have a guy with an Oakland Athletics card who spent the previous season split between AAA and AA. For some reason, he has a card on the Oakland A's. He's not young. He's not a prospect anymore. And then before 1988 even starts, he gets traded. And this trade is included as one of the top trades in Reds history. But Tim didn't get a Topps traded card, so we got to go to Jose Rijo's card for the This Way to the Clubhouse. So let's look at the This Way to the Clubhouse for Jose Rijo, that Jose was traded by the Athletics to the Reds with Tim Burtzis in exchange for Dave Parker, December 8th, 1987. And so this is the second time that Tim and Jose Rijo are traded with one another for an MVP caliber player. Dave Parker was a little old at the, at this time. He's 37 years old. He would play two seasons in Oakland, winning the 1989 World Series with the A's. Riho would immediately make the Reds look good. He went 13 and 8 with a 2.39 ERA in 1988. That was a 151 ERA plus. He spent 10 seasons with the Reds, won a World Series, and had a run between 1990 and 1993, where using baseball reference wins above replacement, he was the most valuable pitcher in the National League. So this trade worked out well for both teams. Burtzis was kind of just gravy for the Reds. Yeah, he opened 1988 at AAA Nashville, but was called up after eight games and appeared in 36 games in the majors, making four starts, ERA plus of 86, for a Reds team that won 87 games. And then in 1989, this would be the only time in Tim's career when he spent the entire season in the majors. He pitched in 42 games, all but one in relief, went 2-2 two and two with his only career save, and had a 3.75 ERA, which was a 97 ERA+, plus, so right around average in the league. And, of course, if we're talking about a Reds player in 1989, we need to check with Grandma's scorebook. Tim only shows up on the wrong side of a cycle. <laughs> he gave up a double and a triple to the Pirates' Gary Reedus on August 25th. So unfortunately, Grandma's Red Scorebook does not have some good memories for Tim Burtzis. What it could have had was a huge moment in Tim's career. So up until 1989, at the plate, he was 0 for 10. In his career, that 0 for his career streak continued until July 2nd, 1989, down five to nothing in the third inning. 
Tim came to the plate against El Cid, Cid Fernandez, and he hit a one-two pitch into the right field stands for a home run. And it was his first hit of his career, the only home run of his career, and the only hit of his career. He would finish his career with a one for 18 mark at the plate. That one hit was this one home run. So a big moment for Tim. That's an astounding combination. David, can we do a stat head search real quick and see how many pitchers in Major League history have only one hit and that hit was a home run? Yes. Using the parameters more than 10 at-bats, only one hit, and that hit was a home run. Five. We have five results. Tim Burtzis had 18 at-bats in his career. That's the second most. So we have Tim Burtzis, we have Tyler Cravey, Jason Davis, Anthony Renato, and Roberto Rodriguez. Roberto Rodriguez was, I guess, the most inept of these batters. He had 21 at-bats, only one hit, and that hit was a home run. I mean, elite company for Tim Burtzis, and thank you to Stathead for that. In 1990, Burtzis started in the bullpen with the Nasty Boys, Randy Myers, Rob Dibble, Norm Charlton, Tim Liana, Tim Burtzis. All the big names. And he started pretty well. He gave up no runs in his four appearances in April. He was used mostly as a middle relief man while Dibble, Charlton, and Myers were brought in to shut things down at the end of the game. And in June 4th, he did something I'm not sure I've heard of, a four-strikeout inning against the Giants. At the time, this was relatively rare. Tim was only the 22nd pitcher to do this. Of course, the way that you do this is have a dropped third strike on one of the strikeouts. That batter then takes first base. He ended up getting his fourth strikeout of Gary Carter in that inning when Gary Carter was briefly with the Giants. While this was the 22nd time in history... Up to that point, now we're up to 102 times that that has happened, what with strikeouts being all the rage these days. And catchers apparently dropping the ball a lot. But by late June, he was less effective, mostly was used to eat up innings in losses. July of 1990, he made six appearances, all of them losses. So he was sent down to Nashville and brought back up in September to close out the season with the National League West champs. Tim made the postseason roster, but he didn't make an appearance in the National League Championship Series or in the World Series. He did get a ring, and he was on the World Series champs at the end of the season and on the the World Series roster. He was released at the end of the season and signed with the Yakult Swallows in NPB. Yakult was a maker of a probiotic milk beverage that owned the team's Yakult won the 2021 NPB title, managed by former White Sox closer Shingo Takatsu, who we mentioned and celebrated earlier in this series. Anytime that I can talk about Shingo Takatsu, I'm going to take it. And the Yakult Swallows made the NPB World Series last year, but they did not win it. They did not repeat as champions. Tim played in 18 games for Yakult, making 16 starts. His ERA was 5.61, not the best time in Japan. After that season, he signed for Rimini in the Italian League. Rimini is a city on the Adriatic. This team was very successful, winning 13 Italian League titles and three European Cups. However, the team disbanded in 2018. It was replaced recently by the new Rimini team. So there's a team that is just 
the new Rimini baseball team. For Rimini, Tim was good. He was three and one with a two point three one ERA in limited appearances. But in the league championship series, he led the team to the title, winning two of the three games in that series. Both were complete games, and he gave up only one run in those two games and was an Italian league champion. Campione. He attempted to catch on with his hometown Detroit Tigers, but hip problems forced him to retire. He had dual hip degeneration and would end up getting his hips replaced in 2003. So closing the book on Tim Burtz's five seasons in the major leagues, 138 games with a record of 14 wins and 14 losses and one save ERA of 4.08, which is an ERA plus of 93 in a not quite love to face, but Kirk Gibson, he was the batter he faced most. Kirk Gibson went only two for 15 against his fellow Spartan, also getting hit in the face once. Meanwhile, Brian Downing went four for seven with three homers that off of Burtzis, so that's someone he hated to face. What about in retirement? Tim used some of the money that he earned, particularly that money playing overseas, to start a business. Looking at his career earnings in the major leagues, the most Tim made was $120,000. So in, in one interview, he, he said that he kept playing and particularly going to play in Japan to just make some money to invest after he retired, knowing that he was going to have to get another job and get another career. He wasn't retiring a millionaire. He ended up starting a construction and development company called RBI Inc. And he was involved in some real estate investments and management. And he had a perhaps unlikely business partner, a guy that he once beamed, Kirk Gibson. <laughs> And they teamed up on a few projects, including purchasing the Ellis Barn in 1884 Barn. And they donated the property to the Oakland County Parks and Recreation Commission, along with a $75,000 donation to assist with the barn's relocation and rehabilitation. It took five years to finish this barn rehab, and now it is used as an event space. On the website, it looks like a really beautiful space. It's a giant barn. And Tim also developed the Clarkston Village Place Condos, which was the first new construction in town in 40 years. So that small town of 750 people, that's why it only grew to 1,000. Not a lot of new development there. But Tim went back home and started building some stuff up. In 2010, he was involved with the Oakland County Cruisers, a Frontier League baseball team. But they only lasted one year. They were unable to get a new stadium built. They ended up moving. Now listed on his LinkedIn, he is the owner of the Old Mill Inn in Clarkston. And this is a property that he renovated and now owns. They have paddle boards, kayaks, access to three lakes. It looks like a really nice, quaint little inn in Clarkston. It has relatively good reviews on Google. I didn't look on Yelp, but it looks like a nice little hotel. <laughs> looks like the perfect place for a summer road trip. Well, David, this is a guy who didn't even play in 1987, had no major league stats on the card, and was just a big guy that we may not have ever heard of. But now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? The 2023 trade deadline is upon us, and we are seeing players moving between teams and prospect halls, maybe not in the five players for one 
or five players for two that Ricky Henderson was. And I think that the expectations shouldn't be there that all five of those guys end up playing in the majors for a team. But Tim was part of this now sort of notorious trade for an all-time great. It's unclear what would have happened if that trade hadn't been made. It's not like the A's got surefire stars who ended up as the core of their World Series teams. Maybe if they had kept Jose Rijo, this trade would be viewed a little bit differently for Ricky Henderson. But they did end up turning some of those players into key pieces, getting Bob Welch, getting Dave Parker, and then getting Ricky Henderson back in exchange for Eric Plunk, among others. And the A's had Tim Burtzis for a few seasons. He had a good rookie year and then some ups and downs before getting sent to Cincinnati in exchange for another legend. It's strange for a guy to be on both sides of the all-time best and all-time worst trades for a team, all in the course of three years. Burtzis wasn't the reason why that trade to the Reds is one of their best ever, but he did contribute and ate up innings for that 1990 World Championships team. And that's a, an important role to play, to have a middle reliever who can eat up innings and take some pressure off the rest of your staff. Tim traveled the world, was able to travel to Japan, to Italy, to win a championship in Italy, but he never forgot about his hometown of Clarkston. Tim's dad, Gus, retired in 1987, right around the time that this picture on the card was taken, after 30-plus years of working for the Clarkston schools. And he was a coach and a teacher and a mentor and an administrator. And in 2005, Gus passed away and was remembered as a local hero. In his obituary, it was pointed out that his kids still lived within one mile of where they grew up. And Tim went overseas, made a little bit of extra money, and started that business. And he's also served on the board of directors with that background in early childhood education and dealing with special needs children. He has served on the board of directors for the Clarkston Scamp, a summer camp for special needs children. And so in looking into Tim Burtzis, this wasn't a guy who made millions of dollars playing Major League Baseball. This is a guy who needed to go back and have another career and has been able to have a nice second career and second life after baseball and give back to his community and give back to his hometown. And he just seems like a decent fellow. It's a nice, good story of a player that didn't play in the majors a long time, but used the opportunity to go overseas and to find new experiences and to also scratch out some cash wherever you can while you're young and can still play. So an interesting story of for a very tall dude. And so thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever accidentally hit your business partner in the face with a baseball or otherwise, we'd love to hear all about it. We're on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.